regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold in-depth conversations with practitioners and researchers in the data universe to unpack the narrative journeys of their careers. Today, I have the pleasure to interview Sarah Catanzaro. Sarah Catanzaro is currently a partner at Amplify Partners, where she focused on investing in and advising high potential startups in machine intelligence, data management, and uh, distributed system. Her investment at Amplify include startups like Runway ML, Maze Design, OctoML, Metaphor Data, among others. She also has several years of experience defining data strategy and leading data science teams at startups and in the defense intelligence sector, including roles at MetaMap, Palantir, Civilians, and the Center for Advanced Defense Studies. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So I want to start our conversation talking a little bit about your upbringing. So I believe you were drawn to math and natural science growing up and at some point switched interest to terrorism analysis after experiencing the 9-11 tragedy with your own eyes. So can you just share a bit about this uh, formative experience early in your life? Absolutely. So my mother is a psychiatrist and clinical researcher. My father is a molecular biologist. And so given their background, I think there was a natural tendency to be drawn to statistics, mathematics, as well as as well as the natural sciences. And, And so Growing up, I always felt like I was engaged in those disciplines, whether it was listening to my father explain like the biochemistry of Diet Coke or listening to my mother explain like how a drug goes through clinical trials to get approved by the FDA. But while I was in high school, 9-11 happened and I just remember it so vividly. I was sitting in the library. We had TVs in the library and all of a sudden you see on the TVs, these planes crashing into the Twin Towers. And I remember after a like really tense and hectic day, like trying to contact my father who who was working in Manhattan, like all sitting around the table and just thinking like, what would motivate other people to commit such atrocities? And I think that that question kind of stuck with me throughout my college years. what could motivate people to commit you know, such horrific acts of violence against people who they don't know, against civilians? But I think what is interesting is that you know, as I went through college, I started thinking about how we could apply these more scientific methodologies to actually answer that mm-hmm. question so that we weren't just taking this you know, subjective and also potentially biased approach to kind of understanding the terrorist ideology, organizational dynamics, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing this experiment. Yeah, let's go a bit deeper into uh, what we got to transition into your time at college. So for college, you, you went to Stanford to study international security studies. 
There, you also work at the Center for International Security and Cooperation, which is an interdisciplinary research hub that adopts uh, methods from various fields to explore the evolution and organizational structure of insurgencies. Uh, first of all, how was your overall experience at Stanford? And, and second of all, like, what do you recall about being involved with CISC? Yeah, I think one of the things that I love the most about Stanford is that they take a very entrepreneurial approach, even to education, you know, encouraging people to explore different disciplines, understand the synergies of those disciplines, and then you know, grow the body of research within those disciplines. CSAC is probably a perfect example of this phenomenon. On the surface, you know, it's an institute for international security and cooperation. So you might think that like that would be an institute that would be dominated by history, by international relations, by you know, political science. But in fact, like many of the faculty on staff at CSAC come from engineering disciplines, come from you know, management science, economics, mathematics, statistics, computer science. I think the really kind of underpinning idea is that if we apply these various disciplines to understand these really, really tough problems. You know, why do terrorists commit atrocities? Why do nations engage in war? These are hard, gnarly questions. And so we should use all of the resources that we have available to, to try to answer them. Just out of curiosity, like, what are some of those most surprising findings that you found about like, you know, the sort of the motivation behind this terrorist attack, I think? Yeah, no, I think one of the things that was really interesting to explore was how the terrorists often act like any other rational actor. And therefore, you know, a lot of the methods that we use to study businesses can actually be used to study terrorist groups as well. I, I, I find myself thinking about this constantly in my new role where you know, I'm trying to understand startup behavior. I hate to draw connections between startups and, and terrorist groups, but they both have incentives to obfuscate information about their operations. Startups don't want to reveal too much competitive intelligence. Terrorist groups obviously don't want to reveal any plans about their operations. So given this need to operate in a clandestine manner, but also to exchange information internally with your partners, et cetera, how does that kind of impact your behavior? Again, like many of the approaches that we use to study businesses from network analysis to game theory can actually be applied in this context. So I think it was interesting to kind of see that so many organizations, no matter what their objective are, kind of follow similar patterns. Yeah, thanks for sharing that fascinating um, analogy. Your first job out of college was a program lecturer at the Center for Advanced Defense Studies, where you um, collaborate with academic researchers to develop computational approach that counters terrorism and uh, piracy. You know, do you recall any notable initiatives that you have facilitated uh, at the center? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I was involved in two big projects, at least that I recall during my tenure at the Center for Advanced Defense Studies. The, the, the first was my like first real exposure to AI as well. So at the time, there was a institute called the Joint Forces Warfighting Information Center, and they engaged us in a contract really just to review you know, all literature and synthesize insights on computational approaches to counterterrorism. So 
This ranged from looking at you know network analysis to agent-based simulations. At the time, you know, deep learning wasn't really it hadn't taken off. Like the AI winter was still in effect, but you know, thinking about how we could use agent-based simulations, how you might you know, computationally represent or mathematically represent things like intent, things like hunger things like fatigue to understand how you know, the military might respond in a battlefield situation. It was, again, like the first time that I'd really seen what we could do to understand, frankly, human phenomena, leveraging you know, computational and mathematical approaches. Mm, I see. Uh, what are some of those academic groups that you collaborate with and the type of people that you got a chance to work with from academia? Yeah, absolutely. So we had a close collaboration with the Mind Machine Group at MIT. I could be, you know, misremembering the the exact name of the group. I think it was about like 12, 13 years ago. They were focused on computational linguistics and uh, developing models such that you could identify adversarial intent based on the utterances of potential terrorists. I believe that, you know, MIT had this open course where when they had like free materials online, I actually, you know, I was, was taking one of the class from the, from the brain smart machine. And, and so kind of familiar with the lectures and the approach that they use to, to study the human brain and adapting your own approach to different AI. So it's really cool that you had that opportunity to, to interact with them at that early phase of, of their um, inception. After two years at C4 IDS, you transitioned into industry and became a cyber intelligence analyst at Civellant, which provided threat intelligence services to enterprise worldwide. So how was this career phase of yours? Yeah, so it was interesting for me. You know, I'd, I would describe that transition very much from academia into industry. So although like the Center for Advanced Defense Studies was obviously not you know, a PhD or master's program, so not officially an educational institution, it was a think tank. So much of the work that we were doing there, it, it was research. Um, I had alluded to another project that we worked on, which was kind of understanding the organizational and network dynamics of Somali pirate groups. And while that was a bit more applied, I was still, you know, a step removed from the intelligence asset that were, you know, embedded within piracy cells in, in Somalia. Um, and I think that distance always concerned me, like knowing that like there were people whose intelligence memos, et cetera, I was analyzing, but feeling like I didn't have like a true sense of empathy with them. So I transitioned into an industry role where I was on site at the Secret Service such that I could be like more immersed so that I could see the applications of my analytical work on, you know, the customer firsthand. And I think, you know, that experience was very valuable because you know, it, it wasn't an academic exercise. It wasn't a laboratory environment. And there, there was a lot, frankly, that I learned, not just about like how humans behave in this adversarial setting when, when we're trying to respond to potential threat actors, but mm-hmm. also about like bureaucratic dynamic. You know, certainly at you know, the Secret Service as a defense contractor, I'm talking about like both a multinational organization in a highly regulated industry intersecting a large U.S. government institution. And so like understanding how you could navigate that red tape while still advancing technologies 
um, and providing, you know, better tools, experiences to other analysts and uh, field operatives. I think that was really the crux of you know, that experience and what I learned. Thanks for bringing that organizational challenges in, in the world of yourself. Navigating that red tape is very uh, interesting to hear during that phase of your career. In 2013, you mm-hmm. took a position at Palantir as an embedded analyst where you observed some of the struggle that many agencies had with data integration and modeling challenges. Can you just briefly walk over your time at Palantir? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, Joe, certainly working at a large defense contractor deployed to a large government organization, there was a lot of bureaucratic red tape. And I think this is probably where I first observed like the startup impulse in myself. I started to get frustrated by that red tape. I saw these opportunities to like do better, deliver better tools, but navigating those organizational hindrances was not just challenging, but in some cases, arguably impossible. So so I think I was really drawn to Palantir and this promise that like, you could take an agile startup-like approach to driving innovation in the public sector. Many of my initial deployments at Palantir were actually with state and local governments. And I think I learned a lot at Palantir, not just about organizational dynamics and working with that type of customer, but frankly about data. Many of the challenges that our customers faced were not in fact just analytical challenges or even analytical challenges. They were challenges associated with integrating data from disparate sources, understanding what data was trustworthy, applying those insights into data quality when kind of addressing the integration of disparate sources, and then applying what you had learned through the integration process and the data preparation process to drive better analysis. So I think certainly it was really illuminating just in terms of the challenges that organizations and others face with data. Just curious, like, this is 2013. So what, what is the state of like tooling for data integration and modeling at the time? Like, what, what are some of the tools that, say, you as an analyst or, you know, this company was, was using on a day-to-day basis? Well, the tool that we were using was Palantir. Um, but I think, again, like, just thinking about, like, the dominant trends at the time, Palantir was doing a lot of work in terms of big data integration, but also introducing new analytical paradigms, whether it was graph analysis or geospatial analysis, and making those more accessible to an audience without necessarily strong technology chops. And so while there was uh, coding work that we were doing to facilitate the data integration, we were also creating additional helpers, additional interfaces such that the integrated data would be made available and the analytical tools would be made available to those without any technical training. Mm, I see. And so you spent about one year at Palantir and um, in in 2014, you joined uh, Metamark to build out its data team. And more specifically, your team developed a wide range of approach to build a private company intelligence platform that have investors and five promising startups. And actually, I also found a presentation that you gave a couple of years ago on this notion called human algorithms that Metamark used to automate the startup data collection procedure. Could you mind kind of going over your experience as the head of data at Metamark alongside some of the specific challenges of creating this new intelligence platform? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think I had two real challenges that you know, I encountered at Mattermark that kind of could be used almost to summarize my tenure there. The first was the challenge of building a data team. In 2014, like data science was still emerging as a discipline. And it wasn't immediately clear, for example, what the trajectory might be for a data scientist, what the difference between a data analyst, a data scientist, and ML engineer is or should be, how a data science team should interact with the broader org, who should the data science team report to, and so on and so forth. And so there was a lot, I think, that I had to both learn and make up uh, on how to build and scale a data team. The next set of challenges was actually doing applied data work. So again, back in 2014, while there might have been very interesting research on uh, machine learning, there was kind of less precedent for using machine learning to build new products. While I will not say that we used ML to solve every data problem, I think we did you know, develop a strong capability and competence in understanding what problems could and should be solved with machine learning and developing this methodology that really integrated both you know, human work internally and externally and machine learning to deliver the best result. I think if anything, where we really innovated there was developing these kind of multidisciplinary or at least like multifaceted systems, if you will, where machine learning played a critical role, but we didn't expect to address our full requirements with machine learning alone, where we could layer on you know, data mining techniques, heuristics, crowdsourcing, and other approaches to generating insights from data or otherwise transforming data to deliver the best possible data set, best possible experience to you know, Mattermark customers. I see. So like adding an additional layer of rules-based heuristic and things that you can write into the top of the algorithms, you know, to make sure that it, it performed better that rather yeah. than just the ML itself. Yeah, I mean, I can give an example. So we had industry classifiers that we were developing to understand, you know, is a company a healthcare company or a finance company or a transportation company? So we de developed these ML-driven classifiers. And I think we were able to many of them get them, you know, above 90% precision, above 75, 80% recall. But there was always going to be kind of a subset of data that we struggled to classify accurately. So given kind of that dynamic, I think you know, we had two choices. One was like continue to invest in those models to get the precision and recall higher. The other was to understand that there was some subset of data that we might, again, like always struggle to classify and find ways to identify that subset of data such that we could use a different classification mechanism, you know, such as in a domain expert who, who could review that information. And so what we ended up doing was actually building confidence scores such that you know, the classifications for which we had low confidence would get routed to an actual human who could make that assessment. And with that adjustment, we were able to really achieve the precision and recall that we wanted in a more nimble way, you know, without having to iterate on this model over and over, not knowing if you know, it would remain robust as the domain shifted and, and you know, trends emerged and things like that. 
really identifies the subset of data, which is harder, harsh faces for the algorithms and kind of route that to the human who can make the decision and then given the human input and get it back to the algorithms in order to improve the, the performance to the level of uh, expectation that you want. Just want to touch a little bit on your previous point about that change of building out data teams. As at the point, there's like another clear distinction between these various roles, right? And so, you know, from your experience as a manager for data analysts and data scientists, etc., like how do you think about the career trajectory for these type of roles? Like, you know, what is like, you know, the ladder for these positions? Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting. I can't remember, and I should be able to remember the Venn diagram that my friend Drew Conway created a couple of years ago, kind of describing the data science role. I think essentially what it boiled down to was like soft skills, statistics, and programming skills. And in many ways, I think that like those components of the Venn diagram define the career trajectory for a data scientist, although one could perhaps like layer on mathematics as well. So to kind of go a level deeper on that, I think what I saw was that among those who started perhaps as data analysts on my team, some really enjoyed the soft skills aspect of the work. And for them, you know, I think what was interesting was understanding how to define the problem understanding how to scope the problem and thinking about kind of the best approach, like more broadly, uh, whether again, it was data mining, crowdsourcing, machine learning. For many of those people, I think the product management or technical product management path was really kind of best suited to their interests and their skills. For those that really enjoyed the modeling work, whether it was, again, statistical or mathematical, I think there was kind of a natural path from doing data analytical work to doing you know, more data science work. And then for those who enjoyed the programming, I think it was, again, natural to explore you know, opportunities in, in data engineering. So, so I really saw kind of the data analyst role as a branch where one could go into these various other trajectories. Now, I've been thinking a lot also about like why those branches need to split and if there is a trajectory for data analysts, that does not mean you know, essentially transitioning into a new role. And in many ways, I start to think about like my own experience and, and where I am today. I think you know, the other path that I didn't necessarily think about during my time at Mattermark was that it might be natural for a data analyst to become a VC. So it might be natural for them to cultivate more and more domain expertise, not just in defining and scoping problems, but in understanding the dynamics of a startup ecosystem such that you know, they became a domain expert. But in many ways, like a domain expert with analytical skills is really an expert analyst. And, and I do think that that is a, a career trajectory that is and should be available to more people in the field. Thanks for really going very deep into those different elements of the roles and the necessary attributes to advance for their respective career choices. I guess like one side note is that, you know, before this role, it was mainly more like an IC 
position and then for this role you leading teams recruit people a lot of management right like throughout this period as the head of data what are some of the resources or you know the things that you uh, rely upon in order to improve your leadership capability Yeah, absolutely. So when I joined Mattermark, I'd never really worked outside of the defense and intelligence sector before. I had never managed a team before. I'd never really considered myself a data scientist before. So this was all entirely new territory to me. And I think like there were two things really that enabled my success. The first was that I had a strong peer group. Who were going through similar things again back in 2014? Like nobody really knew how to manage a data science team, or you know, how to structure the team such that they could maximize ROI. And so I think we created you know the, these forums such that like we could have these really valuable discussions and really just kind of relate to each other. It, it was almost like a support group. I remember like the speaker lounges at Cloudera's Wrangle conference back in the day and emerging from those discussions, not feeling like I necessarily learned something new about like statistics or data science, although I almost always did, but that I always took away, you know, a new nugget on like how I could and should be managing my team. And so like that network was just incredibly valuable and frankly, one that I continue to rely on even today. I think the other thing that really enabled my success was perhaps like more personal in building a team. I would say that like my biggest accomplishment at Mattermark was the set of people that I recruited and the things that they accomplished. Like my proudest achievement is the way in which my team grew, not just expanded, but where they grew, you know, professionally and, and personally. And I think. Given all of this uncertainty about organizational dynamics, given like the roller coaster that is always going to be startup life, just really like loving your team and being invested in their success and letting that kind of motivate you to almost overcome any you know, problem obstacle. That to me was fulfilling, inspiring, motivating, and I think you know, gave me the. A joy to like power through some of the harder aspects of the job. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing those nuggets of wisdom from a professional point of view. Having that mastermind group and then personal perspective about improving people and, and lifting people up and then building other teams. You spent about two years at Metamark, and in 2016, you joined Canvas Ventures as a data partner. So, what assured to make this career transition into the venture capital land? Yeah, no, it's so funny because I think, like in many ways, my career has been impacted and driven not by a clear sense of trajectory or a clear sense of outcomes, but rather by chance. I transitioned from the defense intelligence sector into startups by chance. To be totally blunt, you know, I was dating somebody at the time in San Francisco. I wanted to move out to San Francisco. Called a friend, said like. I know how to do things with data. Where should I go work? And he referred me to Mattermark. While I was at Mattermark, you know, about like two and a half years into my journey, one of our customers actually reached out to me and said, "Like, hey, have you ever considered doing you know, venture investing? You've had this experience of like working with startup data to help other investors make investment decisions. Is that something you'd want to do yourself?" 
And I think throughout my tenure at Mattermark, I'd been fascinated by the venture job. Prior to my job at Mattermark, frankly, I, I had not had much exposure to it and thought like, hmm, that could be something that I, I'd want to do later on in life. Like in, in certain ways, which I alluded to before, this role in which I could study startup organizations, understand you know, how they expanded, how they contracted, what levers were available to you know, accelerate their growth. It reminded me of my time back in counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. And so when that opportunity became available on a more accelerated timeline than I could ever have imagined, I think I jumped at it. I, I kind of thought to myself, and, and based on discussions with peers, like VC is hard to break into. And you know, given this kind of golden ticket into a venture job, you know, perhaps I would be naive to pass it up. I think, again, just reflecting on what motivated me during my time at Mattermark, a lot of it was you know, cultivating my team. And the other way in which the stars aligned is that there had been an analyst who you know, subsequently became data scientist, was also doing product management work, who just really grew rapidly throughout his tenure at Mattermark and his tenure as my report. And so when this offer became available to me, it also just seemed like a juncture at which he was ready to step up into my role. And so, you know, Again, the stars kind of aligned because there was this interesting path for me to explore mm -hmm. and also like a natural leader to kind of fill my shoes and build them incredibly. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for filling all those details and all those factors that, that you consider when we're making that decision. You mentioned like a bunch of great things about VC and opportunity to study a startup in depth. It's just out of curiosity, you have been working in the space for like close to five years now what are some of the misconceptions that people have about venture capital? Well, the first misconception is definitely that like VCs spend their days like whining and dining and, you know, just kind of flippantly picking investments. I have never worked as hard in my life as I have in venture. So what I would say is that like, it is not an easy job. Often people ask, like, what does it take to be successful in venture? And I think, like, to some extent, yes, you need to be like, smart, motivated, have certain soft skills, yada, yada, yada. I mean, a lot of what it takes to succeed in any profession. Frankly, I think what it really takes to succeed in venture is stamina. You need to be kind of always on because any interaction could potentially be a future investment opportunity or opportunity to help facilitate a customer or a candidate relationship for a startup, you need to be kind of always aware so that you understand the trends that are happening in a certain industry, so that you understand you know, what companies are forming or might be forming. I think you also need to be like somewhat comfortable with uncertainty and the fact that like, given all of the balls that you will have in the air, some of them will inevitably drop. So, so I do think that one of the things that probably surprised me most is just how much stamina is needed to succeed in venture. In many ways, I think, you know, the people who have been most successful in venture are those who have stayed with it the longest. There's also, you know, this critical element of chance. 
Yeah, awesome. Those are very, very fantastic insights, you know, cultivating stamina and making decisions under uncertainty and, you know, taking advantage of opportunities when they arrive. So thanks for sharing those, some of the wisdom. Since uh, 2017, you have been an uh, investor at Amplify Partners, uh, initially as a principal and currently as a partner. What about Amplify's uh, investment thesis that, that attracted you to join the firm? So I think there were really two aspects of Amplify's investment thesis that appealed to me. The first is a rather obvious one. So, so Amplify invests in technical tools and platforms and really covers, I'd say, like three academic disciplines, which translate to three industry markets. So, so those would be data and machine intelligence, data management and distributed systems, and then accordingly data and ML tools and platforms, enterprise infrastructure, and developer and designer tools. So, so I think what I saw during my time at Canvas was like, I really liked investing, but I wasn't in love with generalist investing. Like I, I didn't have as much passion for you know, consumer products or marketplaces as I did for data tools and platforms. And to, to be honest, like it is challenging to become an expert across these various disciplines. Not only did I not have like the passion for these other categories of startups, I also just wasn't that good at it. So I think I realized during my tenure there that what I really wanted to do was you know, focus on investing in the data stack. And in that vein, you know, Amplify was a perfect partner because I didn't need to scale up and learn about like the travel sector or the market for interior design products and my role at Amplify could focus very specifically on the data stack. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think came into play too was the stage focus. So I had worked at Mattermark and in previous roles, really helping companies go from zero to five, like A to D, perhaps, on their data journey. And so my expertise were really in building data teams, thinking about data as a product, not necessarily the like scaling aspects of understanding how to optimize marketing campaigns or how to structure sales salaries such that you get the most efficiency out of your sales team. The things that generally come with like series B, series C investing. So I joined Amplify really for those two reasons, like both the domain focus as well as the stage focus. Mm -hmm. And then finally, you know, I joined Amplify for the team. I think one thing that I've seen very clearly throughout my career is that, you know, it's not like, money or power or something like that, that motivates me. It is team and like winning as part of a team that really galvanizes me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing those, again, factors that you consider when making this decision. And I think I read a couple articles about you on, on Amplify and really, you know, to be honest, investment thesis is like trying to find the tools that might have you scratch your own itch back in the days when, when you were beating teams, see the struggle of your customers. And so it seems like this job is perfect. This, this is like a very niche focus as well as on, on some of those situation in, in, in series A company as well. Just out of curiosity, as a new investor at the firm, right, how do you prove your value upfront and show the value that you provide in deals, particularly the deals with co-investors and with people you want to collaborate with in the future? 
Yeah, I think that is a great question because frankly, like it's something that so many investors struggle with when they're transitioning into venture capital. So to be like very honest and transparent about like my career experience, when I first joined Amplify, I spent like a year looking at domains like computational biology, IoT, even states. And while it was again, very intellectually satisfying to learn about these new domains and the ways in which data, data science, machine learning could impact them. I wasn't really adding exponential value to Amplify because with each new sector that I looked at, I'd have to ramp up, maybe make an investment and then move on. And I think at one point, I just started thinking about perhaps my like prior operating years and how I could feel like more fulfilled in my job as an investor. And also just in looking back on my entire career trajectory. And I think I had this aha moment where I realized that like the best way that I could serve my team at Amplify and uh, the team that I continued to believe in, my team at Mattermark, who had many of them had moved on to subsequent data science roles, was by, to, to what you said earlier, investing in the tools that I wish we had. And it started with just that, like, this is an awesome way for me to kind of marry the commitment that I have to the data science community with the commitment that I have to my team at Amplify. But I think very quickly, I realized that this was also a superpower or an unfair advantage that I could leverage because I wasn't learning about the data science market. I had lived through it. I wasn't trying to kind of infer how data science teams operated and the challenges that they felt and the things that motivated them. Like I had done it. So the combination of having that like insider intelligence, if you will, and the network, you know, which I had talked about earlier, not just a network that, you know, I would build through coffee meetings, but a network that like I had relied on to, you know, help me understand how to grow a data team within an early stage startup. I think that really gave me an unfair advantage. And you know, for that reason, I've, I've focused on the data stack at Amplify for nearly three years now. I see. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those strategy that you use in order to prove the value and make, make a great decision and getting that unfair advantage in terms of your investments. So yeah, let, let's investigate a couple of your Amplify investments. Last April, you led the Series A round for OctoML, which is a zero-based startup that leveraged Apache TVM to enable the clients to simply, securely, and efficiently deploy any models on any hardware backend. Can you share some details behind this investment? Yeah, absolutely. So I think like this investment really kind of crystallizes our desiderata when evaluating potential deals. When people ask about like what I look for in a startup, I often say people, 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 product, market. And again, OctoML kind of perfectly embodies that paradigm. So to start with people, I met Jason Knight, who is the co-founder and chief product officer of OctoML. Gosh, it was probably like four years ago, maybe even five. At the time, he was just transitioning into a new role as an ML engineer at Intel Nirvana. And I remember my initial conversation with him about ML compilers and his kind of 
unique ability to switch between having a technical discussion and then stepping back and thinking about, oh, as an investor, how might you be thinking about ML compilers? And to just show this like strong sense of empathy that so few people have. That really impressed me, both his, his really uniquely strong sense of empathy, as well as his passion for this product. And so over time, over the next, it must have been, I guess, two and a half, three years, Jason and I would continue to meet up at various ML conferences to talk about you know, trends related to the confluence of AI hardware and software separately. I was spending a lot of time in academia kind of understanding how certain research patterns might impact industry. And I met Louise Cezé at the University of Washington to learn more about this TBM project. Like Jason, Louise had this kind of magnetic way of making this really complex technology seem so approachable. So, so, I mean, we've gone through my background. I was studying statistics. I was doing analytical work. I did not know anything about hardware. And I remember speaking to one of our university associates before the meeting with Louise Sazé and just saying to her, this guy's really smart. And I am so nervous that I'm not going to be able to hold this conversation because I know nothing about hardware and I know nothing about compilers. And then I got into the conversation with Louise and he just made it so approachable and made it so obvious. So I think when Louise and Jason told me that you know, they were forming a company together, along with four other PhD researchers from the University of Washington, at that point, it was an obvious bet to make. Frankly, had they told me that they were you know, building DNA-based data storage, I would have invested in that company too. But you know, we did also consider product and market. And frankly, like one of my beliefs is that ML will have the greatest ROI when it moves closer to the edge. I think there are immense opportunities for on-device ML. I have this water bottle, which you might have seen like flashing every now and then, which is supposed to like help me stay hydrated. It's not really smart though. It like flashes every 30 minutes or something like that. I think there's such a cool opportunity to develop a smarter sensor, which will actually measure how much water I'm drinking and help me improve my hydration levels in a more rigorous way. So I truly do believe that as we get better at ML ops, ML will shift further and further to the edge. But for that to happen, we need to be able to do inference at the edge. Mm -hmm. And that's hard right now. So so thinking about a tool that will enable any model developer to deploy any model on any hardware backend, I think that was really compelling to me. And lastly, again, just thinking about my own experiences, I described the career trajectories for various people on my team. Not every ML engineer or not every data scientist was going to kind of cultivate this same set of expertise in full stack infrastructure. And and so, you know, fundamentally, I also believe that like we needed tools such that model developers could build models and, and like not think about the hardware. 
that they could build models feeling confident that those models could be deployed in the right way on the right back end without you know, spending years developing the expertise to know exactly how to do that, how to pick hardware, et cetera, et cetera. Thanks for being like extremely detailed on, on like all those factors that you consider investing in this company and you know, making inferences on Netjes and, and hardware device are extremely hard. And there's not a lot of materials, resources out there uh, in terms of the state of ML hardware in, in general. And there's a few, obviously, you know, we all know some big name companies that sort of monopolize the space. But yeah, but it, it seems like, you know, Octomail is building a very awesome product with a great support of the open source community that can potentially become, I think I was reading the launch article and you said that Octomail will be the machine learning operating system for emerging AI chips and other ML-focused devices. So that'd be a, a, a very uh, exciting and space for practitioners to look forward to. Yeah, absolutely. I think of them as kind of the Linux of ML. <laughs> Last December, you led the seed round for Amplic, which is a Boston-based startup that builds a visual computing platform for business intelligence and analytics use cases. What about the product and the Amplic team that stood out to you? So interestingly, I think, you know, Amplic also followed the same model of people, 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 product market. But I actually came across Einblick through the uh, dimension of product first. So you know, I think having managed data analysts, data scientists, ML engineers, I saw kind of a proliferation of tooling really focused on improving data science and ML workflows. And I saw how you know, by providing better tooling to those in those roles, you could really improve their productivity, extend their skill set further, and ultimately generate organizational value and ROI. But analyst tooling wasn't really changing. I mean, if you look back at like BI tools from the 70s, if you look at older versions of like Power BI, and you look at, you know, Tableau, and you look at Looker, while the interfaces have changed, and the tools can now handle larger, higher velocity data sets, the capabilities, like the fundamental capabilities and the workflows that you can execute, they're not that different. You're still building charts, and looking at tables. And that is what is available to analysts. And so I think we started with this hypothesis that like analysts need tools that enable them to do new things, not just existing things better or with bigger, faster data sets. With that thesis in mind, we came across the North Star project, which was this visual computing platform developed at MIT. And the goal of the project was to combine technologies from the database world, including in approximate query processing, the HCI world, including with touchscreen interfaces, and the machine learning world with various AutoML tools to give analysts new powers. What I loved about Einblick was this focus on empowering the analyst without you know, requiring them to learn a new set of skills. Like, just like every ML engineer who knows Python shouldn't need to learn about compilers, so too, I think every analyst should not need to learn Python. 
So there was kind of that thesis around you know, the product. Then I think, you know, we looked at the team and in order to build this product and build it you know, effectively, you need a tool that can do you know, visual joins at light speed that requires database expertise. You need a tool that can you know, build lightweight predictive models on the fly. That means you need ML expertise. You need you know, new creative approaches to interfaces and creating kind of the right visual metaphors to do things like what if analysis that requires HCI expertise. And I think what we saw in the team was this you know, elegant confluence of all of these expertise, as well as this strong will to not just build things that will make for interesting papers, but that will enable new behaviors, this real commitment to users and applications, not just academic research. Thanks for providing those decision and an analogy between you know, being tools for reward department, not just for academic showcase. In the same month, you also led another sutra for metaphor data. And this is a, a metadata platform that grew out of the Data Hub open source project developed at LinkedIn. Well, what are some of the key factors that trigger you to make this investment? Yeah, so this is the perfect example of like tools that I wish I had. I cannot tell you how many data dictionaries I've had to build in almost every single role that I've had, and certainly the management ones. Among the first things that I've done is you know, take an inventory of the data by building a data dictionary. This is really important for myself to kind of have context on what data is available to kind of define you know, potential analytical or ML projects. It's also important for the broader org so that you know, they can answer questions or at least know what questions we can answer about the business. But it is so tedious. It was hours of like looking through GitHub repos to understand the code that was generating certain data sets. It was hours you know, creating dashboards so that I could understand like the timeliness and completeness of those data sets and how it was changing. It was hours you know, coaching the organization to understand these various data sets and responding to questions about those data sets. It was worth it though. And so you know, I think what excited me about the metadata management category is that you have something that is really hard and tedious and painful to do, but also so worth it. Now, that to me is kind of the right environment in which to build a product. You're solving a problem that is both meaningful and hard. I, I think, you know, the other thing that really excited me about Data Hub is that in addition to data discovery, I was seeing and feeling all of these other kind of adjacent pains, whether it was change management. So let's say a web developer changes an event definition and then you know, a product manager or data analyst is looking at an amplitude dashboard and they're seeing that like signups went to zero and they don't know how to interpret it. You know, issues around change management, issues around data governance associated with GDPR, all of these were starting to kind of boil up among data teams and all of them could be solved with you know, powerful metadata management capabilities. So I believed in both kind of the initial wedge of data discovery 
as well as kind of the power of metadata management to solve a variety of problems. Naturally, you know, I went and met with probably 50 different companies that were working on data discovery, data cataloging, so on and so forth, as well as probably at least dozens, if not hundreds of former colleagues, friends who were struggling with these problems. And I think what I also strongly believed based on those conversations was that any metadata management platform, it really had to be push-based. So trying to just ingest all data sources in a pull-based manner, I just didn't think that was sustainable at a time when you know the number of data sources was proliferating. I also saw kind of the field shifting slowly but increasingly towards streaming. And so also really believed that, and I, I, I do believe that that trend is only going to continue. And so a, a metadata management platform that kind of fit into the streaming data architecture would be the best tool. And, and so, after meeting the metaphor data team and learning more about data hub, it was a category that I believed in with the set of product requirements that I really believed in. And a team, again, that is just so passionate about metadata. Like if Mars or Purdue founders of metaphor data told me that they spend 23 hours a day thinking about metadata and you know an hour a day thinking about like their families, maybe I'd think that they spend a little bit more time thinking about their families, but I wouldn't be entirely surprised. Like this is kind of the key motivating problem that they want to spend the rest of their lives on. And so having a team that I believed in, a product with the right set of requirements and a category that is important now, and I think will be important in the future, that that really inspired the investment. I see. Yeah. Those are very extremely important points in terms of Managing metadata in order to um, to tackle some of the later challenges in terms of uh, lineage and discovery, as you mentioned, and obviously those are going to be important in the future, or maybe there already is. Yeah, I mean this this project also being backed by a variety of other angel investors and other firms, so it seems like um, there's this sort of unified agreement that extremely important, I believe. You know, around the same time, like late last year, you led Series A route for Runway, a New York-based team that is building the next generation creative toolkit powered by machine learning. Yes, yeah, so what about the product and the Runway team that uh, resonate with you? So the obvious answer is just that like the Runway team is so cool and I just wanted to be able to spend more time with them to like hope that their coolness would rub off on me. That is a very facetious answer. So, so I think one of the things that you know I spend a lot of time thinking about is I believe strongly in better data science, ML, data tools and platforms for data practitioners. But I also believe that data science and ML can and will start to impact other roles. So, so with Runway, I think what was really inspiring there was the idea that data and ML can start to inform creative professions. And not that you know, on day one, you could build a tool that would radically transform the way that designers, filmmakers, et cetera, worked, but that you could take an approach whereby initially you just enabled filmmakers, VFX artists, others to, to play with ML. And then you'd enable them to experiment, prototype with ML. 
And then you would build, you know, ML into their tools such that like they were more comfortable with it too. And I think that this kind of gradual approach of introducing machine learning into the workflows of non-data practitioners, I think it's frankly like the right way to socialize machine learning in new roles. What I love thinking about often is like ladders of abstraction. How can we create kind of the right set of interfaces, the right set of technologies, such that people can engage with a new computing analytical paradigm in a way that they feel most comfortable. And I think Runway really embodies that. Like if you want to just automate the rotoscoping process, you can use their their green screen tool. If you do that and you want to learn a bit more about other ways in which ML can kind of inform your workflow, then you can start experimenting with their model directory. If you get really into it and you want to start building your own models, you can in fact build those and add those as modules in Runway such that others can use them too. And so some people will kind of scale those ladders. Others will just stay at one ladder. But I think kind of this approach of creating the right tools and the right interfaces for the right people is super powerful. And I think that's what's enabling Runway to really unlock now this opportunity to kind of do what I said was impossible from the start, to radically transform the ways in which creatives go about their work. Absolutely. In fact, I actually got a chance to um, go to one of the showcase, I think in New York, two years ago, where I saw, you know, some of the founders that run with demo the product. And in that audience, there's a bunch of artists and I think video gamers and, and professional filmmakers and, and things like that. And they, they were like extremely excited about it's like a meetup where, you know, the, the attendees showcase some of the product that they use using Runway, using the, the SDK that it provided. Tell us resonate with you in terms of how you know, creative professionals can leverage this tool as a medium to expand your creativity and um, build cool products that foster innovation for the world. Absolutely. It's incredible to see some of the things that are being done with Runway today from you know, designing entirely like new sneakers to creating board games to again, like just making the video editing workflow so much easier, so much more streamlined, and also just like fun and exciting. I think that's what I really love about Runway. Like they make ML fun and exciting, but also powerful. And and nailing that, nailing that is hard. And I think coming from the art world, but with the technology background, it's that set of experiences that has really enabled them to deliver such a compelling product. Yeah, finding the right layer of abstraction where give enough control for the users using a complicated technology like ML is extremely hard. And it seems like Runway is doing a phenomenal task at accomplishing that. Reflecting on your experience investing in many early stage companies, what advice have you been giving your portfolio companies in hiring decision and expanding their funding team? And you know, additionally, what advice should they ignore? Absolutely. So I think the advice that I'd say that they should ignore is that like there is some formulaic approach to building their teams. That if you just you know, hire a product marketer at month six and a front end engineer at month seven, you will succeed. There, there is no formula. And I think you know, building great teams, especially great founding teams, starts with a strong sense of like self-awareness and direction. So, so 
as a founding team, you will be good at many things, great at many things, but there will be gaps. And I'd say like understanding the gaps, the things that you're not good at, as well as kind of the gaps between what you're good at, but not great at, it is really critical when you know building a founding team. And so in many ways, I think about like building a team as kind of an exercise in layering on greatness, which is going to be different you know, for every company. So I'd say that is one of the really critical kind of capabilities, especially in founders, having a self sense of self-awareness and letting that inform the hiring plan. The other thing is just having a strong sense of mission and direction. You're not always going to be right about you know, what you need to build or what set of skills will map to that. And I think one of the big challenges of hiring is that you often need to start recruiting for roles before you have you know, that clarity. But I think you do need to have some hypotheses. And if you aren't you know, constantly like, testing those hypotheses about the product and the path from you know, an MVP to the ultimate vision, then I think you know, it's easy to, to hire the wrong people. So it's this mix of like knowing what you're good at and knowing where you're headed that I think really informs early team building. Those are very nuanced answers that I think could be very, very valuable for any technical founders out there. Amplify recently also raised uh, some new funds for Amplify Partners Thought and Amplify Select Fund. So uh, definitely exciting to, to see more on this type of investment that focus on tools that enable uh, data scientists and machinists, engineers to be more productive in the future. So I uh, definitely put in terms of information in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to kind of, you know, explore some of these ideas and, and decisions that uh, Sarah made uh, along the way. Besides your investment, you also edit and send out a weekly newsletter called Projects to Know since 2019, which features three papers, three projects, and three articles that play a meaningful role in advancing ML technologies. What is your motivation behind writing this newsletter, and what is the most challenging part of curating it? Yeah, so it's crazy to hear that we actually started in 2019. It doesn't feel like it's been you know, over a year, maybe even close to two. I think, you know, back in 2019, I guess, I was subscribing to like a lot of ML and data science newsletters, just consuming a lot of content. One of my frustrations was that I tended to find that newsletters fell into one of two buckets. One was kind of like the soundbite-esque newsletter where they were focused on ML stories with like more of a public interest angle. So, you know, machine learning is helping radiologists detect cancer uh, more efficiently, or machine learning is leading to uh, kind of these injustices associated with the way that, you know, police departments behave. And like, these are very important stories, but, but I think they're, they're often well covered. On the other hand, too, there were some publications that like just focused on research. And the goal was just like, we're going to include a bunch of research papers that you know, perhaps like help you stay up to date with like, what are the innovations that are happening? But there wasn't really anything great for practitioners, which would just focus on you know, content research projects that they could use in their day-to-day. 
it's not news. It's just stuff that could help you do your job. And so I think that's where I was kind of starting and where I hopefully am continuing to go with projects to know. It's, you know, highlighting news, papers, projects that will just help practitioners do their job that might not have like public interest and might not be the most exciting research trend, but that are practically important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I heard in, you, you mentioned in one of the previous podcasts that this is like a, like a forcing function that allows yeah. you to, um, you know, stay up to date with new tools and, and new research. And going back to that part about stamina, right? As a VC, you kept constantly identify potential investment and, and finding the right people. And I think this is a great exercise for you to, to just like know what's going on in the landscape and, and accomplish that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is a lot of exciting research and projects, et cetera, that are coming out. So I'd say like the hardest thing is picking what to feature in the newsletter. And also I'd say like explaining it in a way that is interesting to those with more technical skills, but accessible to those with, without. But I think, you know, having the synergies between what I do for my job in terms of like understanding trends related to the data stack, important projects, and you know, making that available to the community. There's a lot of synergy there. Awesome. Finally, I'd love to probe your insights on new trends in the data management and machine learning tooling. You wrote a Twitter thread in early February making several predictions for the data ecosystem. What trends that you think will have a disproportionately huge impact in the future? And also what trends that you think are overhyped? Oh, that's a great question. When I think about trends that will have a disproportionate impact in the future, I'd probably focus on three things, at least for now. So, so the first, and I think like the most obvious one, which I alluded to before is, is streaming data. In my point of view, like the world is better represented as a stream. When we make sense of the world, we're not making sense of like, batch data. We're making sense of signals that are coming in you know, constantly. So, so I do find that the streams, all data sets will be a representation of the world, but streaming data sets are probably a higher fidelity representation. So, so why don't we use streams then for everything? I mean, the answer right now is because it's hard and complex. And, and so I think what I'm starting to see and what I'm very excited about are technologies that are going to make streaming data easier. That kind of acknowledge that like this is the most faithful representation of our business, of the world, and we should use it. We, we, we shouldn't kind of neglect this paradigm just because, you know, it's complicated. I do think, you know, streaming data will change the way we do everything from analytics to you know, deploying machine learning models to even like training machine learning models. So I'm very excited about kind of the impact that streaming data will have. Another trend I think relates to kind of the deviation between data science and uh, machine learning, if you will. I think uh, initially during the AI hype cycle, there, there was a strong impetus to build new products, automate processes, with machine learning. And frankly, like those sort of tasks are more akin to software development than they are to science 
or analysis. And what I'm seeing increasingly though, is that organizations are actually benefiting, not just from like ML-driven product development or ML-driven software development, but also through better analysis. And this might come in the form of forecasting. It might come in the form of experimentation. It might come in the form of something like churn analysis or root cause analysis of churn or conversion within funnels. Much of this analysis actually requires not just an understanding of machine learning, but in fact, a fundamental knowledge of statistics. And so I do see kind of more of a trend towards not just the democratization of machine learning, but also the democratization of statistical analysis. The last trend, and I feel like this is kind of an obvious one, but perhaps the impact is less obvious is kind of the operationalization of machine learning. So, so for several years, I think you know, machine learning is still stranded in research. Some companies might try to productionize research, but it was very challenging. And what this kind of meant was that you either had to carefully select the ML projects that you worked on, or that you had to kind of like cross your fingers and hope for the best. I think as it becomes easier and easier to actually operationalize ML models, including with better tools for monitoring, maintaining, understanding those models, it will become easier and easier to also take a more agile approach to ML product development, to try more things and see what works. And I think that'll help us better understand the really kind of high ROI use cases for ML, which will then you know, unlock even further innovation in, in the ML stack. Trends that I think are overhyped. <laughs> I might have alluded to this before, I can't really recall, but like, I am not a strong believer in end-to-end auto ML. I think there's an immense amount of value that is actually gleaned through human and manual work, including about, you know, the limitations of your data, including about the limitations of your models, including about how your team works together. And so while there may be parts of the ML development and deployment process that can be automated, frankly, I think one, it will be very hard to develop end-to-end auto-ML systems that are robust, reliable, and debuggable. And, And frankly, I think like you compromise on certain aspects of organizational efficiency even if those systems are state-of-the-art. I see. Those are very wonderful insights that, that are extremely valuable for, for listeners, right? The rise of streaming data, democratization, the statistical analysis, and the importance of ML ops. And um, I'll do your second part about that auto ML thing. I, um, yeah, it's kind of going back to that approach that you developed in MatterMath, right? Like that algorithm where, you know, you try to incorporate that human in the loop aspect. In order to prep for this conversation, I listened to one of the podcasts that you did a while back. You mentioned the notion of augmented intelligence when um, you know you try to combine human and machine together, then that could be an extremely uh, promising feature. I mean, try like imagine like trying to put together a puzzle when you didn't actually know the shape of each piece, where you're just given a black box. Like you'd never be able to put together the puzzle. So like to me, it almost feels naive that we would think that we can compose these various auto ML modules into an optimal system. 
Fantastic. So, Sarah, at this point, our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment, which is like three rapid-fire questions. You can give quick answers to the listeners. Uh, number one, uh, name three people in the venture capital universe whose work you admire. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd say that, like, as a category, the first set of people that I would mention are my team members, including if I had to pick three, but I'll I'll give others too. Uh, Sunil Dhaliwal. Mike Dabber and Lenny Pruce are our three GPs. I think I am so grateful for kind of the mentorship and guidance they've given me throughout my career. And I think another person who I really admire in venture is Mike Wolpe. I remember as like an early associate trying to reach out to like various people in venture and getting turned down repeatedly. And he was one of the few, if only people who like made an hour and a half to talk to me about open source trends. Yeah, the engaging conversation as well as kind of the commitment to you know, working on my career was what really inspired me. I'd say that the last person that I would add is Gary Little, who was a mentor to me during my time at Canvas. I think Gary really helps me understand what it takes to be a great investor. He was one of the the people who kind of inculcated in me that like you can't just be great at sourcing. You need to learn how to diligence deals. You need to learn how to win deals. And perhaps most importantly, you need to know how to make an impact as a board member. Fantastic. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate better foresight. Book that helps cultivate better foresight. So this this is perhaps an unusual choice, but one of my favorite books is is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And I think you know, it's one of my favorite books because it really forces you to kind of think about quality and what quality ultimately means. And I think understanding quality is kind of critical to developing foresight. Finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage data practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I think my tweet would be that like it gets better. Like it's hard. It's hard to kind of navigate some of these organizational dynamics. It's hard to deal with like shitty tools. It's hard to quote uncover novel insights unquote amongst kind of a mess of messy data. But it gets easier. The tools get easier. The organizations start to kind of manifest in ways that make them more navigable. The data quality issues with you know, effort are reduced such that you can produce you know, important insights. So <laughs> I guess it, what I'm saying is like, it all comes down to stamina and you know, stick with it. Yeah, fabulous. I, I think that's a, that's a great way to end our conversation. So Sarah, I... Uh... I learned so much from this conversation. I'm talking to you, kind of going over your early interest in studying international security and learning about terrorism analysis to Justine working in threat intelligence at various large organizations and startup to your foray into the industry at Admarama and your experience transitioning into a venture capital world, some of your investment at Amplify trends in the data and ML tooling ecosystem, as well as some fantastic advice for people, both technical founders are looking to hiring people, as well as practitioners who want to leverage and, and climb the ladder of their career. I'll be sure to include all the links and resources on the show notes, so listeners can have a chance to expose some of these companies, tools, and, and other things that uh, was mentioned in the shows that we talk about. And yeah, thanks a lot, and uh, I hope you uh, have a great rest of your day. Thanks, you too.
Well, that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.